Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. I was born in Salisbury in Wiltshire at 330 parts per million. But now I live in Wales, uh, where I run Black Mountains College, a new experimental institution dedicated to climate action and adaptation. So why am I speaking to you today? I'm not an academic. I don't have a PhD. Uh, My first degree was in Swahili at SOAS, where I spent more time in the bar than I did in the lecture theatre. Um, But I moved to Wales 10 years ago uh, and essentially changed my life. My career was in politics, journalism, and human rights. And I still do write, um, but my day job now is setting up this university. So the first question I'm really asking you here, or answering, trying to answer here today, is what's a journalist doing setting up a university? It's a fair question, um, and it's one I'll try to answer by telling you a story. And I'll raise a few questions along the way. The journey to Wales from Wiltshire isn't far. It's about two hours on the train via Bristol. Uh, But we're, this morning, this afternoon, going to go the long way round. um, Because the story starts first in Africa, then goes up to the Arctic Circle, and back to the UK. So... The third question on this slide is is the one that really set me off on that journey. Because in the early 2000s, I was working in the Horn of Africa, uh, working for Human Rights Watch, researching the human rights of people displaced by war in Somalia and Sudan. And I wrote a book about that called City of Thorns. And while I was doing that work, people were beginning to talk about conflict being climate-driven. They were noticing patterns of shifts in the monsoon, causing drought and famine. And of course, when the bare necessities get scarce, people fight. So I'm a researcher. I'd been trained to ask questions. But I wasn't prepared for the long journey, 10 years and counting, that asking a single question can spark. And that question that I asked myself then was the one I'm going to put to all of you today. Uh, I was asked to leave you with two questions to ponder, and the first one is this, which is, do you feel you know enough about climate breakdown and the impacts that are unfolding? So I started looking into that question a little bit, thinking, well, what, what do I know? What is coming? I'd read the news, of course. I'd seen a film by Al Gore <clears throat> called An Inconvenient Truth, uh, screened in 2001. It's probably an old classic now, but was groundbreaking at the time, and I wanted to know what global warming meant in practice, on the ground, in real terms. I'd seen what was happening in the Horn of Africa, in Somalia, and if societies in the Horn of Africa were disintegrating and life was becoming untenable uh, as a result of actually a very small rise in temperature, 
how long before similar tensions were going to hit Europe or other parts of the world. Now, the Sahel region, like the Arctic, is particularly sensitive to Earth system changes. Very small increases and shifts in rainfall and temperature have very large impacts. Those parts of the planet are our early warning system. So I started reading and reading, and then to get a closer glimpse of the future, I went north, because as you all know, I'm sure, uh, the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet, and it's been warming for 100 years already. So there, <clears throat> I discovered the trees were on the move. Once upon a time, about 100 years ago, the Arctic tree line, which is the growing limit of trees, was creeping north at a rate of inches per year. Now the forest is zooming north at hundreds of feet per year, turning the white Arctic green. Now, the story of that book, of that journey, sorry, is told in my book, The Tree Line. And it's a trip in a circle, and that's what the map shows, going from Scotland to Norway, Siberia, Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. And in those different places, I spoke to scientists and indigenous people living inside the Arctic Circle, and I gained a first-hand view of the massive Earth system changes which are taking place. Now, I'd love to make this a book talk and just tell you all the anecdotes of the crazy people I met and the funny things that happened, but unfortunately, we haven't got time for that today. So read the book, perhaps. <laughs> but the important thing is to summarize the learnings from that journey, which is, number one, holy smoke. We're not ready for what's coming. And I'm going to give you three pictures that I took. This is a river and what used to be bare Arctic tundra uh, in the middle of December in the far north of Norway. Now, that river should be able to sustain the weight of an articulated truck. It used to be a road, um, and those trees shouldn't be there. This is the traditional habitat of reindeer, where they range over the tundra, and they dig the snow to get to the grass underneath. Now, of course, you can see it's in the middle of a forest. So... The second question was, why did nobody tell me this before? But these points are interrelated, and as we'll see, um, there are quite good reasons for that, for, or for why I felt like that. So let's start with that second question. Why had nobody told me this before? Now, of course, they had told me, but not in so many words. Yes, the government has spectacularly failed to communicate what's happening, but there's a deeper issue related to how we receive information and how we learn, how our functions of cognition, perception and cognition work. I've read lots of IPCC reports, I'm sure many of you have too, and scientific articles, but I hadn't integrated that learning into an experience of climate change. To use the jargon, the learning had not been embodied. So no amount of reading would have made me feel it. And of course, feeling is essential to learning and it's essential to action and to communication. So you may have already had some of these facts presented to you in uh, lectures already or indeed in other lectures that you're studying. But I can read you these facts, such as this brilliant summary from the IPCC uh, panel uh, on 
on climate change about what's already non-negotiable. Characteristics of ocean cryosphere change include thresholds of abrupt change, long-term changes that can't be avoided, and irreversibility. Ocean warming, acidification, deoxygenation, ice sheet, glacier, moss, glacier mass loss, etc. The important point is the last sentence, which is these characteristics of ocean and cryosphere change pose risks and challenges to adaptation. In simple terms, what the UN is saying is that we might not be able to adapt to the changes that we've already unleashed. The Earth system functions we're talking about here, deoxygenation of the oceans, ocean acidification, so plankton will die, and ocean warming leading to the death of coral and the collapse of marine food chains are predicted, look at that word in brackets, with high confidence. These things are happening now, and they will continue to get worse. I can keep on with these facts. I can tell you that sea level rise is irreversible due to existing emissions, and we can expect sea level rise possibly of up to 16 metres. It's rising slowly, but it's accelerating, and there's deep uncertainty about the possibility of ice sheet collapse. And the IPCC has only medium confidence that the Gulf Stream ocean circulation will not shut down completely this century. And if that were to happen, and it has happened in the past, models suggest it would lead to the drying out of the UK and the effective end of arable agriculture in Europe. And I can also note that biodiversity collapse is just as, if not more, critical to human civilization than emissions alone. Insects are declining at 1% a year, and 80% are already gone. But, as I said, I suspect you've heard all these facts before. Um, the question is, how do we feel it? We're talking about 20 years' time, if not less. It's not a question of climate change that will trouble my kids. This is a question of human survival on decadal timescales. This is about how we will ensure fair distribution of scarce resources of food, water, and habitable territory for 10 billion humans within my lifetime. And I'm not young. For those of you that are paying attention at the beginning, I'm 48. And yet, this is the problem about feeling and facts in the abstract. Out the window, there aren't any windows, but out the window, over there, on the strand, people are happily going about their day. It doesn't look like an emergency or a crime scene of biodiversity and habitat destruction. It's a process of slow, invisible violence with long tentacles connecting supply chains all around the world. The reality of the planet is not real for most people most of the time. We live in a slightly abstracted, alienated world which doesn't have, has lost its deep connections to its natural source. So, as I write at the end of the tree line, the planet you think you live on no longer exists. Our idea of nature is already out of date. So, to put it another way, we're not ready for what's already happened. We've not incorporated the reality of the changes into our actions in our everyday lives. And to the extent that we've embodied this information, but the structures of discourse and the structures of power obstruct meaningful action, we're left feeling, to varying degrees, depending on our constitution, confused, anxious, depressed, angry, or powerless. I'm sure some of you have had those feelings, or perhaps all of them, at the same time. So what do we do? And the response to the question, what can we do about climate breakdown, 
depends to a considerable extent on your, how you understand the story so far. So what is your answer to the question, how did we get into this mess? And I think one of the previous lectures talked about different narratives. And that's really key to how we respond. So the lesson of the tree line journey, looking at the long history of global warming, the over-exploitation of nature and people is instructive. Climate disruption and mass extinction are not simply a result of carbon dioxide pollution, nor will we avoid the collapse of civilization by simply switching to renewable energy. This is a crisis of values, of worldviews, of inequalities, and historic injustice going back centuries. Ever since human societies that managed habitats sustainably increasingly lost out to societies seeking to over-exploit nature, a process driven by capitalism and accelerated through colonialism, we've been on a collision course with physics, biology, and chemistry, with the hard limits of what the Earth can sustain. Now, I'm not alone in locating the roots of this tragic story in the Cartesian dichotomy between mind and body and the separation of humans and nature. And one of the books I'll recommend at the end is a fantastic synthesis of philosophy, economics, politics, and the arts to look at all the, the way in which all those different narratives of climate change have brought us to where we are at the moment. And that book is called The Nutmeg's Curse by Amitav Ghosh. If we see ourselves as part of nature, as many societies still do, then it would be much harder to destroy the web of life that sustains us. And so to the problem of education and the idea for Black Mountains College. Why did the experience of the tree line not lead me back to politics and journalism to try and push for laws and policies that might limit the damage? And the answer is because I came to the conclusion that what needs to change goes much deeper than specific laws or policies, although, of course, those are important to fight for as well. You can't change a worldview through laws alone. Systems change when there's a culture that demands it. So how do we begin to change culture? Answering that question is the link that takes us from the Arctic to the Black Mountains to Wales. So education, the formal school system in particular, is this point of transmission. Primary school, secondary school, and universities as well. This point of transmission of skills, knowledge, and culture where a society reproduces itself. This, in my view, is among the social spaces with the most potential as a site of transformation. Um, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. The public education system has been hotly contested since it was founded in 1944 at the end of World War II with something called the Butler Act. It's been the target of relentless lobbying from corporate interests ever since, who have, in the words of a team of academics from the Manchester Institute of Education, promoted a 40-year ideological experiment in marketization and neoconservatism. And this general movement towards linking the education system with the economy and the interests of capital has been aided by the influence of fossil fuel companies over many years in a process which a recent academic article called Petro-Pedagogy, of the involvement of big, big oil, big pharma, and corporate interests in 
skills commissions, reviews of curricula, uh, department for education management plans, and all the rest of it. Um, to the point where today the Department of Education website says its number one priority is to drive economic growth through improving the skills pipeline, levelling up productivity and supporting people to work, cross-cutting outcome. Economic growth, the government thinks, is the priority. Not jobs, not even the well-being of people. So when you've got mission statements like that, it's perhaps unsurprising that the government has been so obstructionist on climate education. We were promised a world-beating climate education in 2021 by Nadim Zahawi in the news today, only for a strategy to emerge that's more of a justification for inaction on climate education than a plan. To quote one particularly miserable line, an environmental science A-level is already available for those that have a keen interest in the sustainability of our planet. Who doesn't have a keen interest in the sustainability of our planet? The failure of the current government is so apparent that children, through the Teach the Future campaign, have actually resorted to drafting an alternative law themselves, called the Climate Education Bill, which is currently on its second reading in Parliament this week. But even if, or I should say when, this battle over content is won in the curriculum, there's still a deeper and more insidious problem of worldview culture and how these are taught and learned. A bit like my own epiphany on the Greenland ice sheet in the tree line, we can read and learn about things in the abstract, but what must we do to translate that information into actually knowing something so that it can inform our experience and our practice in the world? For example, you can read about how to play the piano for years, but you'll be no closer to being able to play it. This Cartesian worldview of separation has come to dominate Western society and it's led to an emphasis on abstract, objectified, cognitive knowing about something. The idea that the best sort of knowledge exists in the form of a textbook that describes the world from afar rather than knowing in the world. For example, the idea that you know, the latest agricultural science exists in the university rather than in the practice of indigenous people using biochar or permaculture or uh, indigenous systems of knowledge about soil, for example. Formal education teaches us that we can relate to subject matter as if it doesn't really matter, as if it's somehow separate from us. We don't actually have to act within or response to it. It's also the reason why the education system fails when it comes to addressing climate change, because again, it's trying to teach us about it as if it's a subject somehow separated from us. Climate change isn't a subject that we can learn about at our leisure symbolically. It's a new era. It's a new reality of life. It's going on at the moment. And so the problem is forever perpetuated. And it's unsurprising that young people might feel increasingly frustrated as they're given abstract definitions but not the actual actions and life skills to do anything about it. This worldview of separation is ingrained and continues to shape how we relate to the rest of the world when what's needed is a new way of being in this new world. So the problem isn't just that climate change isn't taught, nor even that it's taught wrongly. The whole worldview underpinning this teaching is fraught 
which is very hard to change from within a society that's shaped by the same worldview. So that's how deep we have to dig to uproot the educational system. And that's why we need new models to pioneer new approaches, which is what we're trying to do in Wales. A hundred years ago, the American philosopher John Dewey warned of the danger of public education becoming symbolic. And what he meant by that was that it was concerned with the acquisition of the symbols of what we think learning is, if it became too divorced from real life. This is his quote, that there is the standing danger that the material of formal instruction will be merely the subject matter of the schools, isolated from the subject matter of life experience. The permanent social interests are likely to be lost from view. Now, this tension between the symbols of learning, what we think literacy is, what we think intelligence is, and the current social interests is now acute. And it leads to contradiction, paralysis, and bad decisions. If you're struggling to think about what to do after university, what is a sustainable career, how can I make a difference? That's a really good, uh, a really good symptom of this bind that we all find ourselves in. I was struck by an essay recently by the sociologist Alex Stefan, who pointed out that climate breakdown and related inaction is largely the result of bad decisions made by an incredibly small group of people, mostly white men. Every day, CEOs and boards of fossil fuel companies, banks and governments choose not to be radical or choose to actively harm the biosphere and future generations because they can't imagine doing anything different. Nearly all of those people understand the science of climate change. They're very well educated. They went to the best, most expensive universities on the planet. But, it turns out, the education on offer at those elite institutions is less likely to be what we and the world need right now. An analysis by the campaign group 1.5 Degrees of the relevant sustainability content of curricula in top courses at the world's top universities found all of them lacking and many with almost no relevant content at all. The worst at the top of the league table were MIT, Princeton, Peking and Tsinghua, closely followed by Cambridge, Oxford, Yale and Harvard. We will not dig ourselves out of the hole we are in with the spades that got us here in the first place. Or to misquote another saying, we won't dismantle our master's house with the master's tools. So we need an entirely new approach of thinking. Black Mountains College is partly inspired by Black Mountain College in North Carolina. In 1931, there was a group of renegade American academics who were inspired by John Dewey's ideas and his statement that education is not preparation for life, it is life. And they founded an experimental college at a town called Black Mountain. They were joined by Jewish refugees from Bauhaus, which was a German art school shut down by Hitler. Hitler, of course, didn't like too much free thinking. Now, Bauhaus was interested in cultivating humanistic values in opposition, as they saw it, to the mechanized, instrumental view of education that had led to fascism. And together they constructed a way of learning that involved the practice of the arts, growing food and building the college together with traditional subjects of history, literature, and so on. The college was an experiment in community, for example, admitting black students years ahead 
of the Civil Rights Act. Black Mountains College in Wales is partly inspired by the name, but also the example of this original Black Mountain in trying to close the gap between life and learning, also the gap between nature and humans. But it's also inspired by the Future Generations Act in Wales, a law that you might have heard of that provides a framework for all public services to measure progress towards a healthier, more equal, more sustainable Wales. And what we're doing at BMC is trying to build a whole school approach that not only rehearses the adaptive skills needed to survive in changing environmental and economic conditions, but also reimagines the mission of the institution as a node of learning in a wider community, in a collective struggle to transform our social and economic systems and rehabilitate our habitat. This means we're teaching new kinds of literacy necessary for the future. Learning how to learn, growing food, understanding ecological and human systems, and engaging in climate and justice-focused project-based learning with social outcomes, particularly in our degree program through change in practice modules in every year of the degree. And in the final year, you do a year-long project and placement within an organization, helping them to make change to align with the Future Generations Act. It's what theorists call values-based education, using activist pedagogies, the idea that content territory and outcome of learning is social change in the real world. At the moment, this is a somewhat fringe approach in the UK. However, it holds tantalizing possibilities for the role that public education could play in mitigating and adapting to climate breakdown. Education and public information is a critical component of major social, uh, social change. Think of the public information campaigns during COVID-19. The government spent 540 million on that campaign, featuring scientists like Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, who became household names. Imagine if they'd been talking about climate change all of this time. How different would our national conversation be? Moreover, the Paris Agreement, the International Treaty, sorry, here's a couple of pictures of what we're building up there in Wales. The Paris Agreement, the international treaty that commits all nations to action on climate change, includes a small clause, Article 12, which says, parties shall cooperate in taking measures as appropriate to enhance climate education, training public awareness, public participation and access to information. Recognising the importance of these steps with respect to enhancing actions under this agreement. It would supercharge our political dialogue if we had honest, uh, trustworthy communication from the government instead of all the misinformation on the internet that is attractive to so many. Now, 194 countries have ratified the Paris Agreement, and yet, the UN says, none of them have committed to mandatory climate change education as part of their national action plans. This is not just a dereliction of duty under international law, it's a missed opportunity. Because research by the US think tank, Brookings Institute, estimates that if you mainstreamed climate education in only 16% of, of high schools in high and middle income countries, you would drive behavior change that would lead to up to 19 gigaton reduction in carbon dioxide by 2050. Now that's comparable to a massive scale up in wind and solar. And that's because, I'm probably stating the obvious here, but technology 
is not the solution. The solution is human behavior and human choices. We have to choose that technology. Yes, it's available, but it's no good if it's simply fueling a rise in energy consumption and consumptive behaviors, which are also destroying the rainforest and pollinators and all of the other systems that we also need to survive. So there's a common, strong common sense argument for climate and environmental education to raise awareness. But there's an even stronger argument for an activist pedagogy that reimagines the role of schools, colleges, and universities within society. They shouldn't just be places to go and learn about the world, but they should be catalysts for change in the world. And in moments of crisis and change, educational institutions have always played this role. In Africa, where I've taught before, in emergencies and natural disasters, in refugee camps, or in contexts of development, the notion that schools and students and universities should be involved in making change as part of their learning is absolutely taken for granted. During World War II, the United States ran an ambitious and comprehensive schools at war program that linked learning to the war effort. The theme of that program was save, serve, and conserve. Students studied lessons in thrift and self-sufficiency, as well as in good citizenship, the preservation of democracy, first aid, communications and propaganda. Students were involved in plane spotting, in childcare, and mending clothes. Talk about embodied learning. That's them actually playing a role in the war effort. Social engagement included art campaigns for public instruction, dig for victory drives, and a huge fundraising effort to buy stamps and war bonds. Schools could even sponsor a plane with their name on. In total, schools raised two billion, that's 30 billion in today's money, for the war effort. Now, leaving aside the fact that that has shades of North Korea and involving students in militaristic adventures, it's an example of the scale of what's possible. Uh, of course, a systems-based approach to learning. You can learn any subject. You can dovetail any subject with a social theme if you know what your purpose is. So the parallels with a potential model for engaged public education framed around climate breakdown and the urgent rewiring of society, I hope, are very clear between that US schools program and what we might be able to do here. At a time, especially, when schools and universities are often being asked to consider or reclaim their civic mission, here is an urgent challenge, and here is a method for engaging with it. But there is another final and perhaps most important point about learning as action, and that is that climate breakdown is a safeguarding issue. What I mean by this, and I'm sure you're, you've all had some experience of this, to be coming of age into this world at this time is a uniquely challenging experience. Our world is degrading in ways that can be overwhelming. The lack of control, the uncertainty about the future, but most of all, this disconnect between what we know we should be doing and what we know needs to happen and the apparent indifference of those in power can be demoralizing and disempowering. Yet we have to hold those feelings um, whilst continuing 
to inhabit a world which is underpinned by hydrocarbons and hydrocarbon thinking. It's not surprising that that disconnect leads to trauma and anxiety. If we were to try and be utterly ethical in every single decision that we make, we'd probably never leave the house in the morning. It can be exhausting. We have to ignore so much just to get through the day. Good mental health is about surfacing difficult feelings, acknowledging them and working through them. And learning that incorporates action is healing and empowering. So that's why an activist pedagogy allows us a way out of this bind, because it allows us to center those feelings, to make that the purpose and the territory of our learning. So we address the dissonance head on. We're not splitting those feelings and putting them in a box. We're actually putting them on the table. We're talking about it and we're looking for solutions because the solutions are going to be collectively imagined. Nobody's going to come along and say, here's a wonderful carbon capture and storage technology, or here's hydrogen, or here's geoengineering. Even if those things happen, massive changes are underway anyway. So this is about a collective reimagining of our society to try and get back within planetary boundaries and at the same time try and address many of the injustices and inequalities which have come to be taken for granted but which are historically determined. So that learning uh, and doing and healing offers us a solution to this existential dilemma which faces society as a whole, not just education, but all of us. We have to find a way to work within existing systems whilst simultaneously seeking to transform them. So what we do at Black Mountains College is a short course called Radical Adaptation. And we make that available. We are working with, with different partners to make it available to different professions. So radical adaptation for teachers, for bankers, for planning officers, for faith leaders. And that's about centering what is happening within the real world as we understand it now, reimagining our purpose and saying, what is my role here? How can I work within existing systems whilst also working to transform them? Now to come back to that example of your career choices, which will shortly be upon you, I'm sure, um, you're faced with a dilemma. We have a, an economic system predicated on superseding planetary boundaries and economic growth. And yet, you need a job. You don't, we don't all have the luxury of going and living in the woods and growing our own food. Indeed, that wouldn't be a productive solution to the problem facing everybody because change and education and communication is about building community so that we can address those problems together. Not only because in utilitarian purposes, somebody on their own in the woods isn't going to affect much change, but also from a psychological perspective. The way that we make meaning, the way that we find a meaningful role for ourselves in the world is through working with other people and other beings, other living beings, and coming to see them as such. So that first question... I faced, which I posed to you, which was about knowing enough about climate breakdown. Let's return to that one, which is, do you feel you know enough about the changes to Earth systems and associated impacts that are coming? 
And if you don't know enough, where are you going to find those answers? How can you trust that information? And what should you be demanding of educational settings in order to give you the information that you feel you need? The University of Barcelona recently introduced a mandatory module for all students in all subjects on climate change, but only after the students went on strike and campaigned for months to make the administration do it. It's absurd that that's necessary. There should be leadership from uh, our institutions telling us what we need to know, and if we're not moving, we need to make them move. So that's the first thing, is, 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 is to come back to that question and to explore the implications. The second then, which I asked of myself as a result of that first one, was where do you see yourself in this process, this arc of a struggle for a habitable planet? This is not some future-oriented scenario. It's happening now, and the changes required to adapt are also happening now. There are many, many people around the world, including many of you, I'm sure, working for that future. Where do you see yourself in the process? So back to that radical adaptation short course, the last module is about alignment. How do you square your nine to five with your family or your nine to five with your passions and your interests? So where do you see yourself in relation to your job, your job in relation to the company you're working for, the company in relation to the sector that it's working for? So, for example, I'm giving a talk on that this afternoon to a bank in the City of London, and I'll be asking that bank, what role can you play within your sector to drive change? You say you're committed to net zero and a sustainable future. Well, what role can you play within the sector to move the whole sector? Is it conceivable that all the banks might lobby the government for regulation to actually level the playing field? They say they don't mind about a carbon price or carbon dividends or more regulation on, on some of that stuff and the role of the financial industry. Well, but they say they want a level playing field. Well, how about you lobby for that level playing field? These are some of the things, some of the ways in which we can answer that question. How do we live within the hydrocarbon world whilst working to transform it? So those two questions some readings that I'll suggest at the end, in order to get to grips with this enormous reality, which is a bit like an elephant. You know, you're always, you're always describing a tiny piece of it, but this thing is bigger than all of us. The state of the world is scary. Our fear is justified, but we're not alone. And although accepting that the status quo is irretrievable and that your planet will be very different from the one my parents bequeathed us, is hard, it's also a historic opportunity to do things differently. Apocalyptic thinking, which I'm sure we've heard plenty of, is actually quite lazy. Because climate breakdown will not be the end of the world. It'll be the end of what we have been told about the world. It'll be the end of our ways of thinking. It'll be a catastrophe for many species and for people in many places. But there is still going to be work, there's still going to be community, there's still going to be making art and music, falling in love, having children. I like to draw the parallel with the refugee camp that I used to work in in, in Africa and I wrote about. Those people live 
in incredible conditions that are almost unimaginable. And yet, there are parties, there are weddings. They are making a life which is nonetheless worth, worth living. Yes, it's constrained, but all it does is redefines the field of human action. It redefines what's meaningful and it redefines what's possible. It doesn't negate the humanity of the people who are living there. And that's the same with climate change. And that's why apocalyptic thinking is, is, is tempting, but very lazy, because it means that we don't have to think about the future. And actually, we need to be thinking about the future. We need to be imagining harder than ever how are we going to get there and how can we make it happen. So we must prepare our children and young people for those likely futures, but not as victims. As capable and responsible stewards of the earth, the inheritors of our mistakes, but also of our successes, and most importantly, endowed with the values and the judgment to be able to tell the difference. Have a read of those, uh, and please get in touch if you've got any questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.